0: Hi, this is John Atack, and I'm with my beloved companion, Chris Shelton. Um, It's what? It's uh, seven years now. Seven years before the mast. And um, we're going to talk about some interesting things along the way.
1: Indeed uh and for my audience this is uh the sensibly speaking podcast welcome to it everybody uh very happy to have you on board and as you can see and hear i am joined by my good friend john Atek. and this week we are discussing i i reached out to him last week because i thought you know it's time that i do a fully dedicated episode to this one topic we are asked about this uh often This comes up as an undercurrent to the Church of Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard's intentions with Scientology, Um, and that has to do with the subject, the mysterious subject of the occult. The occult. What is the occult? Well, in the broadest sense, I'm just going to read to you uh, to start this off with a little word clearing. (laughs) This is the what is the occult because this is a word that has all kinds of baggage connected with it, just like the word cult. But occult is not the same thing at all. The word occult, in the broadest sense, is a category of what is called esoteric supernatural beliefs and practices. And by the key word, there really is esoteric. It's A term scholars use to categorize a wide range of loosely related ideas and movements that developed within Western society having to do with non-mainstream, you might say, spiritual or supernatural beliefs or ideas or rituals or practices. All of that falls under this umbrella term of the occult. And if you've ever heard of mystery schools or the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn or the New Age, the New Age movement, or spiritualism, these are all things that fall under this idea of the occult versus what you might find more mainstream accepted religious beliefs like Christianity, Catholicism, uh, Judaism, etc. So we differentiate these things. And the reason this is important to talk about is because there is a very famous quote from uh, that John reminded me of before the show from Nibs Hubbard, from H- on one of L. Ron Hubbard's children, where he said, and John, correct me if, I'm, if I miss this one um, Scientology works, it just doesn't work the way everybody is being told it works. It works the way L. Ron Hubbard intended for it to work.
0: It was some, something like, um... Scientology works in the way it does not work in the way that Elron Hubbard says it works. It works in the way he intends it works, and yeah. I think we're both paraphrasing.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: It, let's get to Occult and what what we mean by that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I spent far too much of my life studying um, religion, <laughs> not as a as, as a devotee or a practitioner, but just out of Absolute fascination. It started in my in my teens, looking at Christian heresies and why, you know, uh, favorite is the donatist heresy, which is not to do with donuts. Um, It's the idea: if the priest is impure, is the sacrament, the the body and blood of Christ, the host, is it still pure if the priest is impure? And the Catholic Church, a long time ago, said yes because he's been blessed and so therefore even if he is the most evil child abusing monster in the world the sacrament is still pure phew now there are a lot of other sects that don't take this view so the first sect to be genocidally removed by the catholic church in the 13th century ultimately um, the albigensians or cathars in around toulouse in the south of france and they were it was genocidal. They were completely destroyed. Wow. Their point of view was that your priest had to be a parfait, a perfect person. And they could be women as well. Imagine that.
1: Oh, sacrilege. Wow. Um, progressive for 13th century religious figures.
0: So those kind of ideas have fascinated me all my life. That they, yeah. they are to me what, you know, Game of Thrones is to the general public. <laughs> was... Um. And one of the differentiations that is made is that there are three forms of religion. One of them is the devotional form. Christianity is a devotional religion. You worship God. Buddhism has unfortunately become a devotional religion. You have Amida Buddhism, Pure Land Buddhism, where people believe that by you know your devotion you you will be you will achieve salvation. You will be saved. In Hinduism, you have the Krishna groups where simply by repeating the Krishna mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hare Hari Hare Rama, and on from there, that's all you have to do. Uh, you have the Tibetan groups where you can crawl for hundreds of miles going down on your hands and knees every step and wearing your poor knees out. This is all devotional. I'm pretty sure that it's not what uh, the Buddha wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not what Jesus wanted. Mm-hmm. These are religions of devotion. Nichiren Shosu, Soka Tina Turner, you know, pray to a Gohonzon scroll and go, "Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz?" <laughs> so, devotional religion can lead into prosperity, Christianity, and all those things. Mm. You then have mysticism, which, which is a word which is is much. Um, misused in our society. Um, this takes us back to the beginning, uh, about 1800 BC, the Eleusinian Mysteries, mm, where yeah. we hear about the Sibyls and these people who would give these prophecies of what would happen. And it gives us the word mystery. These groups were called, they call themselves the Mistis. And they went through a series of initiations which would generally lead to, and this is still the case I'm told with the Freemasons and some of the Rosicrucians, Um, I hope Jeff Augustine isn't watching this because I might get into (laughs) trouble, Um, what is called the Grave of Fire among the Masons. And the idea is that ultimately after you've been through all sorts of fascinating little ceremonies, progress through the steps of a Gnostic um, system, you will finally be put in, taken into a dark place, blindfolded, and um, there'll be things to try and scare you around. Ooh. And then you'll be put into a coffin and the lid will be put on. And people will come out of this experience. There's actually a South Korean group that's doing this during your lunch break if you work in an office there, that you can go into a coffin for a little while and people are giving these, oh, wow, it completely changed my life sort of stories. So if anybody out there wants to sell this for 500 bucks, you'll make good money. And please don't. Um, that Basically, that word changed. By mysticism now, we we mean inquiry. And as um, Eric Fromm put it, he called himself, uh, as I do, an agnostic mystic. Mm. That you, you want to understand the world and you are seeking the truth, whatever the truth is. That was my determination from the age of 14, and I still don't know what it is. Um, but if anybody does know, write me a postcard or something to explain it to me. That's the second. The third and final aspect of religion is the desire for power, the desire to control supernatural forces. This we generally call magic.
1: Yes. And this yes. takes
0: us into the realm of the occult. Yes. And our starting point with this is the very definite assertion that Elron Hubbard was a believer in magic and not in the nice kind of pop song, Believing in Magic. He actually believed that you could summon forces of nature, which are embodied as Deities or divinities, demons, gods, and use them against other people to promote your will and and to go forward. Um, do you want to comment on that before a gish gallop? Oh answer? no,
1: I absolutely do. This is no, this is really fascinating stuff. And 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 you know, we are just people in the Scientology watching world are are not the only ones who are fascinated by this. I mean, this is something that. You know, well, my this,
0: biggest hitting videos are always about Hubbard and magic. Yeah,
1: know? no, they, this is fascinating stuff. And I want to stress from the beginning here that what we're going into in this show are the, the actual principles that Scientology is founded on. Because you, yeah. can't, you can't read Hubbard's works... And come away with a clear-cut understanding of the origins and, and the origin story, and you know the genesis of Scientology, because Hubbard's not admitting to you what the true story is. He is telling you his PR-sanitized version of that that he believes people will accept. It comes out of the Buddhist tradition. It's built on you know 10,000 years of man searching for his soul and. And for answers, and we finally melded science with, with uh, Eastern traditional you know, mystics, mysticism and, and tradition, and we've come up with this. This is how Hubbard presents Scientology, by the way. All the things I'm saying here are straight out of Scientology materials. Hubbard says it's a melding of the East and the West and a, and a distillation of all of the truths out of both of these camps into a science of certainty a, a bedrock foundation of principles that are universally applicable, always going to work. And that's how they believe in Scientology, that you can assembly line spiritual enlightenment. And by that, I mean this, the Henry Ford assembly line. You, you put people through these steps uniformly, and they will achieve spiritual enlightenment, personal immortality, and an awareness of themselves in the universe that transcends all of existence. And this is how Scientologists bolster themselves into believing that they are part of a movement that is more important than life itself. Mm. Yeah, That's the power of this stuff, Yeah, you know? But what we're going to now reveal to y'all is what Hubbard was actually doing with this, because yeah. the truth of it is there's a lower—there's uh, a layer of reality to Hubbard, what Hubbard was doing with this that has nothing to do with everything I just said.
0: Mm, we, we should really use this as a kind of two hour teaser, the end of which will sell the book. Yes. yes. That gives you the secrets of the universe. No, we will give you the secrets right. of the universe, but listen carefully. Yes. Um, so Scientology is based upon uh, three elements that come together. The first is that Elrin Hubbard was a nuclear physicist. He was an expert on Western science. The second is that he was a war hero who had cured his own wounds. So there is a therapy system involved here. And the third is that he had studied with gurus, wise teachers in the East. In different places, he claims to have studied with gurus in China, India, Tibet, and Mongolia. Correct. I've not heard of any gurus in Mongolia, but he now. The reality of these things is firstly, uh, as he admits in a, a lecture of the 23rd of September 1950, if you want to check it, called Introduction to Dianetics, that he flunked the course in Atomic and Molecular Physics that he took at George Washington University. His grade sheets from the university agree with that. Yep. Uh, yep. I was amazed when David Miscavige released that lecture. I'd never heard of it. And suddenly there he is saying, yeah, I flunked that course. Atomic and molecular physics is not nuclear physics. They are quite different subjects, in fact. The nucleus is a lot smaller, and different rules apply. Yep. So he yep. never studied nuclear physics. He failed, the course, in atomic and molecular physics. And that is the first claim. A scientific mind... No, he also said he was rubbish at mathematics. So That's
1: right. that and claim... He also caught. said he was a horrible lab man. I never forgot that quote. I can't remember where it comes from. It was a lecture he gave, but he said, I'm a horrible lab guy. I don't keep notes. I don't keep up on, the, on all that stuff, basically admitting he's a shitty scientist, right? And in fact, he's not a scientist. But his claims of being that are contradicted by his own words, as we're describing here. So,
0: Absolutely. If we move to the second idea, which is a psychotherapeutic system by which he Cured his war wounds. He didn't have any war wounds. He was quite honest about that in an interview in the November, December uh, 1950 edition of Look Magazine, where he talks about having had ulcers, pink eye conjunctivitis, uh, having fallen down a ship's ladder, and having something wrong with his feet. Uh, We never did find out what that was. Um, Maybe they were webbed. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But he then would later. You know, crippled and blinded at the end of World War II in my philosophy in 1965. So there's a degree of exaggeration there. So he did not cure himself using a therapy. If we look at the way that therapeutic systems should be scientifically developed, and they haven't been, but they should be, then we come back to the principle of the gold standard. The gold standard is an experiment which has 1,000 participants minimum. It has a proper control group, and the experiment itself is designed so it can either prove or disprove the idea. If it will only do one or the other, it's not a proper experiment. Scientology, as far as I'm aware, and I have spent 48 years of my life one way or another involved with this, there was only ever one attempt at a scientific experiment. That was in the Los Angeles Foundation, the Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation, and Hubbard does allude to it, in the book Science of Survival. I actually have the published paper that they made at that time and pretty much what they said and which he affirms is they knocked somebody unconscious which ethical committees might have a bit of a problem with and then said something to him while he was unconscious and then sought to recover it in a session. They failed to recover it. That's right. That yeah. is the entire research program of Scientology. When in Dianetics, Modern Science of Mental Health, or Mental Science of Modern Health, if if you prefer, was put forward, he claims to have 272 cases, I think. Mm -hmm. But curiously, when I corresponded with Don Rogers, who was there when the book was written in Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, New Jersey, throughout that period, he said what happened was that Art Sepos, at Hermitage House, a medical publisher, commissioned Hubbard to write a book, and Hubbard turned to him and said, well, deep trance hypnosis is really unpopular these days. I'm going to have to come up with something else. So the research on the Dianetic Reverie, or light trance method, which Hubbard banned a year later in Science of Survival because it was hypnotic, and it then came back in 77 as the book one course, and it's still there. But the research for that was nobody. exactly. Uh, so. That's him as a scientist working on psychotherapy. Get those things out of the way. That takes us to... I think think
1: maybe we might want to stress one point here Mm. in building up our our history or or, or our case here on this. Is Hubbard's case histories were always a case history of one.
0: Oh, no, sometimes two. The the LSD
1: research and research into two cases. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Not a thousand
0: and not then replicated by a separate experimenter who is not involved with the original. Never. No No science involved. No. Uh, No
1: Well, I'm being somewhat facetious when I say this only because the case study of one, of course, is is Hubbard looking in a mirror. That's that's what I mean by that, right? Is that he oh, yeah. would just sit down and write things or say things in lectures, boldly claiming scientific validity to his statements while really only talking about one person in the room him, his own. Oh, but he had a thousand body titans. Yeah. <laughs> okay, of course. Sorry. Please continue. I just wanted to highlight that point.
0: Yeah, no, no, I'm quite right to do so, I think. So then we have his study with um, mystics and gurus. Now, Mm -hmm. my backtrack before Scientology, I I did spend a few days in a Zen monastery. I did learn Zen meditation, and I was part of a proper Soto Zen community for almost a year. And so I've studied, I've read... All of the Diganakaya, the, the long sutras of the Buddha, along with the heart, the lotus, the diamond, the garland, all of these things, I've, I'm i thoroughly well versed in um, Lao Tzu and Jiang Tzu, the founders, the atheists, by the look of it, founders of the religion of Taoism, as Buddha was the atheist founder of the religion of Buddhism, and... Um, I've, you know, I've read the Gospels, I'm familiar with obscure things like the Nahamadi and the Bar Akbar and the Dead Sea Scrolls. I've spent a lot of time around all of this stuff. I've read a dozen Joseph Campbell books, Mercia Aliadi. And what I must say about Alan Hubbard's understanding of any of these things is he didn't have any. Right. Right. Um, He was not Maitreya. In the words of Monty Python, he was a very naughty boy. Um. Had he been Maitreya, Maitreya, the future Buddha who will save all of humanity and bring humanity to nirvana, he wouldn't be dead. We would all have gone with him because the last act of Maitreya is to take us all off the wheel of suffering and into nirvana, or if you don't like Kurt Cobain, nibbana, which is the Pali word for it. This man knew nothing about these things. Where he talks about it in the Phoenix lectures, uh, in what, 1954. Yeah, yeah. Um, he actually gives us a little view on what we are going to be talking about, because he does talk about being 20th century Buddhism. And of course, Scientology is the absolute opposite of Buddhism. In Buddhism, you are giving up the self. There is no self, anatta. The sem- central principle of Buddhism is the realization of the Buddha that he did not he was not a self. Very complicated, very strange. But Buddhism is about the elevation, sorry, Scientology is about the elevation of the self.
1: I was about to say, that's right. It's it's the uh, polar opposite of what the Buddha was asserting.
0: And he makes that clear in the title eight eight 8008, where he says we are going to reduce the infinity. He, for some reason, stood the infinity sign up and made an eight of it. Never mind. We are going to reduce... The infinity of the physical world to nothing, and we are going to take the nothing, which is your personal world, to infinity. You will still, of course, be a life static and have no mass, no meaning, no motion, nothing at all. You'll still be, in fact, a zero when we're done with you, but the purpose of Scientology is to elevate you to this great height absolutely at the opposite, where the Buddha would be saying, I'm going to get you off the wheel of suffering. The fear of the eternal return, as it's called by Buddhists and Hindus. The whole idea is to not reincarnate. Scientology is selling you your next lifetime, your next lifetime, your next lifetime. So these are not the same thing. And here's the clue in the printed version of Phoenix Lectures, Lao Tzu's Dao De Jing, the word Jing is usually in the old system, the way Giles. It's spelt C-H-Zing. Mm. In the pinyin, the more usual system these days, um, it's a J. But in Phoenix lectures, it's a K. Dao de King. Mm. And that's curious because very few people have ever rendered it with a K. One of them was Alistair Crowley, who made a really awful garbled translation. And I speak as somebody who's read about sixty translations. Translated it twice myself. That the Crowley is just the worst misunderstanding of of, of the ideas in the same.
1: Interesting.
0: So makes there's one little entry point into what will become the next part of our our conversation.
1: Yes, you paid us <laughs> well, and that's interesting because that's another data. To- point that connects Hubbard and Crowley on a point that is unique to both of them. And in a similar way to how, I, I guess it's appropriate to bring this in now, is in 1952, L. Ron Hubbard was giving a series of lectures in Philadelphia. And in those lectures, he breaks down this sort of electronic, spiritual foundations of Scientology. He talks about energy and energy flows and things like this. But those are also the lectures where Hubbard claimed to be His good friend, Aleister Crowley, is how he refers to him in those lectures, even though they never met, and Crowley actually kind of, uh, per per what I've read, kind of despised Hubbard and what he stood for. But he refers to Crowley as his good friend, and he makes reference to a particular tarot card, uh, the uh, Joker, I believe, right? Uh, uh, and And the way he describes the picture of... That character in the tarot card is hyper-specific to Alistair Crowley's personally commissioned tarot deck that he had made for him. And this is a tarot deck you can go buy now. It's a unique deck, and it has a very unique set of pictures on it that he directed be done that way, and that's exactly how the fool, how Hubbard describes the fool character.
0: You will see on the full card, the alligator barking at his heels, Yes. and usually the tarot card has a dog. As my splendid assistant Spike has pointed out, there are, because she's an expert on tarot for reasons we don't understand, (laughs) but there are, I think I was the first person to point this out many years ago, that this alligator, and she came to me and said, well, there are a couple of other decks where you'll have a crocodile and alligator, but it's again a confluence. Let's wind back. Yes. According to L. Ron Hubbard Jr., Nibs Hubbard, um, L. Ron Hubbard's firstborn, born in 1934, um, L. Ron Hubbard's deputy from 1952, where he helped in the research for Scientology, History of Man, his first project. For seven years, he was Ron Hubbard's immediate deputy. Mm. His reputation has been thoroughly trashed. Uh, Because in response to incredible harassment and offers of large amounts of cash, Nibs withdrew all of his statements and admitted to perjury. Now, given that he was scared for his life, his own father was pretty determined to shut him up. And given that he was, in fact, a diabetic, um, who was very ill. I think he had his foot amputated before he died. Yep. Um, he was working as a janitor and when they offered him, I think it was $400,000 the last settlement for him to just sign this document and go away. There is no reason not to believe him because a contract signed under such duress is not valid legally. So we should carefully consider what he said. And my, I have read there's one-tenth of one percent of Scientology, which is a widely available manuscript. I've also read the telling of me by me, which was the final Nibs Hubbard um, autobiography. And,
1: I think and it is. Not, it. That's not something you can find out on the internet. No, uh,
0: I was told that I was the sixth person to be allowed a copy, and I, I was given it with the agreement I would not copy it, and I never have. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie DeWolf has has read parts of it out during his. Utterly incredible shows. What a brilliant man Jamie DeWolf is. Just a real one-off and a little bit frantic at times, but that comes with the territory, I think. But just an incredible performer and with much insight into his father and his uh, grandfather Mm -hmm. and his great-grandfather, Elrond Hubbard. Now, in this manuscript, there are two sets of things. One are um, amazing stories about you know, how diabolic Hubbard is, which to me seemed to be Nibs simply repeating what his father told him. So one of the statements is, for example, that, that Ron Hubbard got the magic from the same person who gave it to Hitler. Now, I'm pretty sure Nibs wasn't there when this happened. I'm also pretty sure it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, having also read way too much about the Nazis and the the occult, Hitler may have at one point possessed a magic book and made some annotations in it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Himmler, Hess, um, and a bunch of the others were deeply involved in ritual magic. So that was going on. And there is this peculiar link, which is a, a man called Nordenholz, in 1934, published a book called Scientology, and it's a book about Aryan race theory and the supernatural powers of, of the Aryans, which you know Himmler tried to get back through selective breeding in mm-hmm. the Lebensborn program.
1: Um, and that's a German book written in German in Germany, yeah. right? Yeah, and there's a, there's a dreadful
0: mistranslation of it. Uh, called Scientology 1934. Scientology is spelt with an I-E at the end Yeah. Um, by uh, a guy called Woody McPheeters. And McFeeters had been a, a close associate of Hubbard who completely, as so many did over the years, fell out with him. Mm. And the translation, I, I had a, a German speaker compare the two and he said, you know, he's really taken liberties to make it fit to... Hubbard's ideas. So mm. it's interesting the word was being used by a Nazi Aryan race theorist and that you know, we have this vague association possibly. I think Hubbard was fascinated by the Nazis um, and mm. produced, let's face it, a fascist group. Scientology, he, he clearly says that people should not be allowed to vote. Uh, unless they are above 2.0 right. on the tone scale, and he will, mm-hmm. in science of survival, and he will later say that uh, nobody is above zero on the turn scale. So he and he talked about benevolent dictatorship. I don't know if he thought Hitler was benevolent. I'm not really sure about his opinion about that. I don't remember him ever saying anything nasty about Hitler, which I'd never really thought about before.
1: No, he referred to the war effort, of course, and the fighting that he did. But I don't remember personal remarks about Hitler, mm-hmm. except perhaps a passing mention of, uh, you know, of, of the man being a you know, a scumbag. But I don't, I don't know that he didn't even use language that harsh.
0: No, no. So I can't remember anything. No. So hopefully somebody watching this who who, yeah. who has delved into that aspect or chanced upon it can tell us that uh, yeah background Hubbard said that Hitler's mustache was much better than Charlie Chaplin's or something like that. Yeah,
1: exactly. One thing, one thing to note here in, this, in these analogies and comparisons, because, of course, everybody always goes to the Nazis, we're not trying to do that. We're talking about an actual connection here. And it's undeniable that when you hmm. look at the structure of Scientology and its, and its dirty tricks operations and, the, and the, the, the snitch culture that Hubbard developed, the reporting system, in other words, that he developed— uh it's it's, it's it's absolutely analogous or inspired by the kind of things that were going on in um, the Nazi intelligence system, which was extensive.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah. it said in one of the, the districts that, that the Nazis were controlling that um, people were falling over themselves to write reports on their neighbors yeah. to such an extent that the Gestapo people could not keep up. Mm-hmm. With with and and this didn't require much in the way of provocation, which is a horrible thought. And The same is true in Scientology. People write ethics chits, knowledge reports. Right. Um, that another aspect that is comparable to to the Nazi system is the multiple ministries that um, Hitler set up a system whereby there'd always be at least two ministries that were meant to be doing the same thing, and they could fight with each other. And you then get you know the the Elrond um, Hubbard communicator the Flag liaison office, the um, the Guardian's office, all of these groups spying on each other Mm -hmm. without necessarily working out. They're all reporting to Hubbard, so he can see anything that goes wrong. It really didn't work. I mean, one of the huge mistakes in the Guardian's office was having the finance department with Herbie Parkhouse looking after the money, and when the Guardian's office exploded after. 11 of them are sent to prison, or nine and then two of them are sent to prison. Um, he comes down on the Guardian's office. He keeps the intelligence division, the harassment division, branch one. So individuals like Miles Meller, Peter Stumkey, they never lost their jobs, but everybody else is hit. And Herbie Parkhouse refused to go to America to be punished. And he may well have kept a certain amount of the cash. Who knows? Mm. Um for the multiple ministries i was fascinated when i realized that having i guess if prince when he was at toronto don't know if you remember this but he said that there was a point where he was running the whole of the tech of scientology and they had i think 180 staff at saint hill in east grinstead we had i think five people working on giving auditing and training who were in the independence and he said you're getting more auditing completions and more training completions than the 180. It is such a ridiculous system, yes. which exists yes. to make money, governing policy of Scientology according to Aaron Hubbard, green on white, make money, make more money, make others produce so as to make even more money. Um, I, I think all religions should have a governing policy of this type that's so open and you know frank about what they really are after. It's to make money and it's to keep everybody that's doing it confused. There, there was a wag who, one of the famous issues in Scientology was the story of a squirrel attacking David Mayo, this bizarre concoction, which where Hubbard was had supposedly said Mayo is the bird dog in the control room. Yes, having not noticed for 27 years that the man was a suppressive <laughs> person, not very really good at spotting that.
1: I mean, how David but Mayo some... was, was L. Ron Hubbard's auditor for years, yeah. Yeah. And And then the guy who he
0: credited with curing him, and and, uh, the man who he said would inherit from him, and then he um, took against him, but some wag wrote a thing called The Story of a Squirrel Part 2, and if anybody out there has a copy of it, I can't find mine anymore. But the insights into Hubbard, it's meant to be, as he says, my name is Ray Mitberg, not Mitoff, and I am declaring myself suppressive, and that's how it starts. And he's, you know, it's a pastiche on what happened to Mayo, but he's got so much that is perceptive and so much that's hilarious, frankly. And one of the quotations is: "People confuse tech and ethics. Mm. Tech is to make money, box car loads of it. Ethics is to deal with anyone who finds out about this or me." <laughs>
1: That's it. That's it. Right there. Yep. So the Crowley connection, this is... Yes.
0: Nibs Hubbard said that his father read the Book of the Law Mm -hmm. when he was 16. So somewhere before March 1928, Hubbard had read this, the foundational book of the Crowley system. And Alistair Crowley, called The Wickedest Man in the World, by the News of the World newspaper, he made it to Hitler's personal shit list, we're told, um, because the organization he ran was actually a German organization that was a sister to the German Orden and the Tula group. And the Tula group is the thing that Himmler and Hess and others belonged to. Okay. So you've got this. These are ritual magic groups. What that means is they perform ceremonies mm-hmm. in the attempt to attain supernatural power Things. Right. Um, so, what Nibs tells us is this was his Bible, the book of the law, and it has the essential principle, which comes from the French writer Rabelais. Um, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. There it is. Then says, Love is the law, love under will. Not really sure what that bit means, but you do whatever you like. Yep. That's the right thing in life. This is the essence of magic the idea that you can get other people to submit to your will to do what you
1: want in the world. That's right. So, and it it should be noted right now. I'll just maybe let me just interject this real fast that Hubbard wasn't in his early lectures, he actually made reference to this, he talked about intention. And magic and having this idea. Hubbard alluded to this knowledge, this esoteric knowledge of magic and the history of magic. And he would drop in these little bits and pieces throughout his lecture in his lectures through the early 1950s about how magic really is and you and how it's devolved into the hat and the wand and the bird coming out of it and all that. He talks in, with in some detail about where the origin story of these things are and how it was always about manifesting will or intent, getting what you want out of life and that these were the, the, the ways of going about doing that.
0: Yeah, and that's incredibly important that, mm. that there are certain ideas that are essential to Scientology. Yeah. Um, exteriorization, getting out of your head, getting out of your mind, being the main one. I don't want to do that really. Um, he's out of his mind. <laughs> um, That—that's one end. The other end is this concept of the will, which would was very popular still in the 1930s. We don't, you know, Schopenhauer's philosophy. Uh, the famous—here we are back with the Nazis. The 1934 Triumph of the Will. Yes. Um, so this is this idea that you can develop uh, power. To be able to control another being without their consent and without their knowledge. That's the basis of magic, whether we call it black magic or white magic, they're both wrong because they do not have the informed consent of the person who's being acted upon. And in Scientology, you're expected to develop 8C, infinite control, and tone 40, which on the tone scale is serenity, but in reality, is shouting your head off at people until they buckle.
1: Um, That's right, and, for- and forcefully, physically moving them if they don't comply. Yeah. It is, it is compliance. It's inten- It's it defined in Scientology, Tone Forty. The definition is quite simple: intention without reservation. You have zero back off, zero unser- you know, uncertainty on this. You want it. You make it happen. Yeah. And this is and embodied is- by that phrase, make it go right.
0: Make it go right, yeah. Yeah. It's all and the- if we substitute the concept of the will for the use of the word intention in Scientology, then we have the whole game yep. that, that you will be able to intend anything. You will be able to intend that your bank account now has a billion dollars in it. And it will suddenly be there. Yep. Um, that one didn't work for me. Um, you will be able to intend that the U.S. government will stop suing you, and you won't have to steal their files. Um, that so. This is very much that it's um, it's a rebranding of magic. Yes. Right. When you translate the words back now. In the famous Philadelphia doctorate course, and by the way, that's not a valid way of getting a doctorate, spending six weeks listening to L. Ron Hubbard, sorry, Um, but they did award them because they took over Sequoia University and then pretended that the the doctorate they gave to Ron Hubbard was out of the blue. And they'd actually, I've got the documents, they'd actually already bought Sequoia before they gave him the doctorate.
1: I Um, didn't know that part of it. That's interesting. Yeah, it, that's interesting. it's not.
0: Then there's a fake telegram that's backdated to try and make it look as if he would got it earlier. It's, it gets so elaborate the the mm-hmm. scam and the hoax that goes on here, the the things that are offered as proof, which are just forged bits of paper that you know, have no provenance. Yep. So, in the Philadelphia doctorate course, um, end of fifty two, beginning of fifty three. Hubbard says, we have ways here of making slaves. Now, I was criticised by Kendrick Moxon, the head of Scientology's Legal, for quoting that without putting, let's make sure none are made, which is the end of the statement, because I don't think the end of the statement is relevant. We have these methods, what we have here in Scientology, can be used to make slaves. That is to say that we can impose the will on others. Yes. When I was um, writing articles to Tanya Ortega at the Underground Bunker, a, a halcyon period in my life, of course, one very astute observer, and if they'd like to contact me, I'd like to congratulate them in, in person for, for pointing this out, said, oh, there's this very interesting passage, which I had read and hadn't made, taken enough note of, where Hubbard says that life is a game And in a game, you have pieces, and it is important the pieces do not know the rules. The job of the players is to make sure that the pieces don't know the rules, because once they know the rules, they'll become players. But then, he who makes the game is not a player. The game maker does not have to follow the rules.
1: There it is. That
0: is the description of Scientology.
1: Yep. You can never
0: be more than a player because the only person who can ever discover any of the principles of the universe is Ron Hubbard. No major discoveries come from anyone else, even though, of course, he says the cycle of action comes from the Rig Veda and, you know, uh, this comes from Freud and this. No, I've decided now that anything important was me. That's right. Me, 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 me. And that's
1: 1965 that Hubbard writes that in that famous Actually, infamously famous, the the most important policy in Scientology is keeping Scientology working. How do you keep Scientology working? By acknowledging. And I I did a two-part breakdown of this paragraph by paragraph, this this policy letter. It's really important in Scientology. People read it over and over and over and over and over again. It's the very first issue of every major course in Scientology is you're made to read this thing again. And one of the key takeaways from it, undeniable, is that L. Ron Hubbard is source, is he is the single source of all of this stuff. No one else contributed anything of real value or importance to it. A blatant, bald-faced lie told with a smile and with such certainty that Scientologists believe it. And you have to actually debunk for them, as I have done and you have done over the years, that Scientology is multi-sourced, practically open source at the beginning. It was so receiving so many major principles from so many places that Hubbard was using to build this pyramid of, 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 of scam. Um, but Hubbard has to have you believe this. You must believe this as a Scientologist, that... No one else is responsible for Scientology but him.
0: And yet, of course, when you look to the Science of Survival and Scientology 8, 8008, they give lists of the people, including, for some reason, Anaxagoras. I've never quite got around that one, but apparently Anaxagoras was a major source. I don't even know who he was. Some Um, crude guy. (laughs) some bloke that he met in a bar bar sometime. I, in, what, 93, I think, yeah, 93 published a paper called Possible Origins for Dianetics and Scientology. And I think, if I remember rightly, I nail 120 different ideas. Following on from Jeff Jacobson's wonderful work before that, where he showed that Scientology included ideas that came from other places, I sought to show that Hubbard knew about these places. So one example is um, Dianetics, Mental Science and Modern Health, um, that he, the birth engram, original yeah. to Aaron Hubbard, on the first edition on the back cover, is an advertisement for Nandor, Dr. Nandor Fodor's Search for the Beloved, published a year before which is an investigation into the trauma of birth and prenatal conditioning. Exactly. So but if he looked at the back of his own book, could have become <laughs> aware of that. But of course, Alistair Crowley also talks about the trauma of birth. So multiple sources for this brilliant idea. I mean, he said it's fundamentals of thought where you've got the uh, the boast, or, or it's I'm, maybe I'm being unfair, the claim that in 50,000 years, Ron Hubbard is the only person to have thought of anything important. It may be true, you know. Yes.
1: And Hubbard would would spin this to his followers, by the way. I mean, how do you get people to accept this kind of nonsense? And, And it's worth noting. The way he would do it is he would say, look, it's not that there isn't some bits and pieces or truths connected to or contained in other people's writings or work. It's that they'll have a piece of truth they'll have some principle that's real about life or communication or spirituality, but then they twist it. They, they screw it up. They, they tell you this, but then they add this other thing onto it. And he came up with a couple examples out of philosophy or religion that he would lecture with that these sort of, these sort of go-tos that he would have to prove this point. So he would say the, the brilliance and, 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 um, ingeniousness of what he was doing is he was distilling these truths out of these and removing their destructive spin. And people would go, oh, right. Okay. And this is how he would deal with challenges to his authority because he'd people would say, but you said this and it's right here in this book in 1920. And he goes, yeah, but look at the next paragraph. Look at how they screw it up. And that's how he would sell Scientologists on this.
0: I remember, I can remember sitting on Sundays um, when I was not meant to be on course. I would go into St. Hill. This is, you know, we're talking in the last century here. And um, long ago, I remember a lecture where, because I'd just go and pull a tape and listen to it. You, you didn't, you weren't charged money and you could yep. pretty much, as long as they weren't confidential tapes. And uh, so I, I listened to a lot of tapes that weren't on the courses and that was very useful to me. And in one of them, exactly as you say, I remember it, he talks about Muni Sadhu, Mm -hmm. who was a self-proclaimed guru. And he said, you know, somebody had brought me this uh, statement by Muni Sadhu, and, and it is true. And I said, we look at the page in the book where he said this, and there are 38 other statements that are not true. And I'm kind of going, that's a lot of statements for one page. Even as a Scientologist, I occasionally kind of went, this guy's full of shit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So yeah, let let me put in another thing, which is that Hubbard said that for something to persist, it must have a lie in it. Yes. So my question for a long time has been, so what is the lie in Scientology?
1: Yeah.
0: And the lie in Scientology is that will help you. (laughs) (laughs) But what I noticed again and again, he also says that if you want to understand an idea, go back to its origin. And that will, it will generally be better than what's been worked from it. Having gone to the origin of, of his thoughts, I there is no single nothing in Scientology that I believe. Um, I rejected it all in 1984 mm-hmm. and said, I'll take it back bit by bit mm-hmm. because while I'm in the system of it, I can't see. You, know, I'll compare it to itself. So I got outside of it and I anticipated that there would be parts of it that I would accept. Mm-hmm. but i don't i've i can give you a if anyone who asks a better formulation and a better source for anything he says because everything he got hold of he entered a lie into yes so that it would persist and because it is the temperament of sociopaths that they cannot accurately reflect their grammar is usually bad as his so frequently was um but any idea that 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 they put forward. One of the things I noticed in, you know, I I, uh, did a comparative of 22 biographies of Hubbard, all of them in fact autobiographies, though sometimes like Mission Into Time, compiled by the editors. No two of them agreed on any story. He was a a blood brother of the Blackfoot Bakuni people at the age of two, at the age of four, or at the age of six, depending on which account you believe. That he became a full-blooded brave of these people. Um, I I incline towards two. I think that's probably when his horsemanship, you know, and all of that.
1: Right, right. The old, but, the old Hubbard legends. For those of you who are familiar, we we were treated as Scientologists to an entire backstory of Owen Hubbard's life that was total horseshit from beginning to end. And this is not uncommon in religious groups. They they they, they even have terms for this, but. But the biography for Hubbard is, it's, quite, it's really quite something to behold how bald-faced the lies are and how voluminous they are from, from his childhood forward, uh, his education, his professionalism, his, his writing, his war activities, all of it, total balderdash. Uh, but they get away with it in the Scientology world because nobody's fact-checking this stuff or asking questions.
0: And you find out that, it, you know, easily enough, you know, as I said with his uh, claims about being a nuclear physicist, if I show a grade sheet from George Washington University, people say it's a forgery. So I very early on started collecting, as I say, 22 biographies. And you say, this is him saying it, you know, crippled and blind at the end of World War II, handwritten, my philosophy, on display at St. Hill. And this is him in, is it 59 Communication and Isness Professional Auditors Bulletin. I was feeling sorry for myself. And on July the 25th, 1945, I was in Hollywood, got into a fight, beat up three petty officers. This is a man who, just 19 days later, the end of World War II, will be crippled and blinded. And yet, somehow, and you get, you talk with people who believe, and the things they will say, um, the first one I got from somebody when I said, "You know, don't have to look at any document from outside Hubbard himself. He's a liar. He contradicts himself, and shadow. He oh, had two bodies."
1: Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. That's right. Parallel time tracks because he because ta- he gives that because ex- he gives that out there as a possibility in one of his early lectures, and so it is truly mind-numbing to watch how people resolve their cognitive dissonance when faced with yeah. these contradictions. It's mind-blowing. It really is. Let me... Um, oh, please yeah. go ahead. Sorry.
0: Well, the, the, ascent, the central character that people need to know about is the Empress.
1: There we go. That's where I was about to go. Perfect.
0: In 1984, I interviewed a woman called Jo Scott, delightful woman, 30 years before, she was Hubbard's personal assistant <clears throat> in London. And... She said to me, that um, one day Ron said to me, um, I didn't write Dianetics on Signs of Mental Health. It was automatic writing dictated to me by the Empress. What was he talking about? Hmm. Okay. There's a very rare book. Spike was unable to find an illustration of the cover by a man called Arthur J. Burks, called Monitors. (laughs) Burks was a major in the US Marines, uh, down in Savannah, Georgia. And in his autobiography, Monitors, he talks about a visit by the redhead. We know Hubbard wrote a letter in January 1949 from Savannah, Georgia, uh, talking about having discovered a new therapy system whereby you could rape women they wouldn't even know about it. Would that Danny Masterson? had? Yes. Yeah. Glad yeah. he didn't. Um, so in this book, Monitors, Arthur J. Burke says, uh, and he was also a very successful, well, he was a very successful pulp writer, I think 800 stories to his name. And he had his own kind of wacky new age system. I don't think he hurt anybody with it, as far as I can tell. But he said the incredible thing was his system depended upon what he called the little it's. These little beings. And he said Hubbard could actually see them. So this is the first mention of body thetans I know of. Yeah. And he could have them jump from one finger to another, apparently. And Hubbard, the redhead, told him these stories about being a barnstorming pilot. Didn't say he was called Flash, which is what he told us later. Um it's that awful Queen song. Ah! <gasps> Favor um, <laughs> of the universe, right? There you go. Um, so he never got scared when he was flying because when he looked out on the wing, there it is. The Empress was there, yep, dressed in green with with red hair. And this is what Crowleyites call the Holy Guardian Angel. The divinity, the Romans used the word genius or Juno, and every individual alive had one of these tutelary spirits, a teaching spirit that could. Napoleon had one, the Red Demon, and he forever rude the day that he didn't listen to what the Red Demon told him about Russia. Don't do it, you know. Um, So it's not an uncommon thought. So he basically. Automatic writing if anybody wants to check in the book Dynetics: the Evolution of a Science, Hubbard says that one of his research methods was automatic writing. So that's that, that I, one we
1: That's right he makes reference to it in various lectures and it always I gotta admit it really confused me as a Scientologist when he would refer to stuff like that. It, I just kind of bounced off of it because I couldn't yeah. understand how that could fit into my understanding of 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 thetans and a reactive mind and all of this very structured, simple to understand descriptions of, of mental anatomy and spiritual, you know, and our spiritual self, that all was pretty simple and made a lot of sense. But then he would make these references to the tarot and to spiritualism and to automatic writing, and it would always confuse the hell out of me because it didn't, seem to fit. But it does. That's the that's the trippy thing about all this.
0: Yeah, that in the end the, there's a statement that he makes where he says um when you become too incredible you become invisible. And yes. um, this applies that that we being vaguely rational in our approach to life basically put aside the ridiculous things in search of the the treasure. Yeah. And uh, we should have approached it the other way around, because <laughs> there wasn't any treasure. Um so we have some sort of you know, we have Nib saying that from uh, the latest March twenty eight, the age of sixteen, um Hubbard is a devotee of Alistair Crowley. We have him saying my very good friend Alistair Crowley yep. in the Philadelphia doctorate course. Um, we also <clears throat> then, of course, have the Babylon working. Yes. And in magical circles, this is has remained a hot topic for a long time. Um, I did... Uh, Brian Ambry in the second edition of Ben Corrigan's Aoran Hubbard Messiah or Madman has a little footnote saying that John Atak is the expert on magic, um, which interested me uh, because I thought Brian Ambry was the expert on it because um, he was really pretty good. But I, yeah, I admit it. I got the phone number for John Simons, who was um, Alistair Crowley's literary executor and the author of The Great Beast, Uh, Biography of Alistair Crowley. And I talked with him. You know, I confess. And it was an incredible conversation. This guy said, That bastard, Aleister Crowley, made me his literary executor because he knew I hated him, but he knew I'd do the job. And some of the material that came out, and I talked with the OTO in New York and on the West Coast, they don't like each other. Yep. Um, yep. but they were really courteous to me. They uh, didn't turn me into a frog or toad or anything along the way, which was nice because that would have made my job very difficult. Um, and I got hold of the letters that surrounded this. Now, people have tried to publicly correct me on this, and I'd like to point out that my sources are a little better than the book they read. Mm. So, for example, there's a letter from Alistair Crowley to his deputy in the US, Carl Germer, um, when he's told that Jack Parsons, the head of the Agape Lodge um, of the Ordo Templi Orientalis, the um, OTO, the, O-T-O, the mm-hmm. German organization that Crowley had taken over, uh, the Agape Lodge of the Church of Thelema, mm-hmm. meaning the will, here we are back to the will, um, sorry, Ordo Templi Orientis. I, I frequently make go. that not Orientalis, Orientis, um, pointed towards, not in the East. Um, that Parsons wrote to Germa about Hubbard and that you know he got a magical partner because Hubbard, far from being crippled and blinded at the end of World War II, was down in Los Angeles hanging out with. Jack Parsons, an incredible figure in his own right. Um, the innovator of solid fuel for rockets, and jet propulsion laboratories, without which the moon missions wouldn't have been possible. Correct. Um, but also a little bit of a nutcase. Yeah. And that <laughs> can happen with extremely brilliant people: Newton, Galileo, yep. Araday. There are a few of them that are a little bit weird when you get into their private lives and their belief systems. Parsons And Hubbard got together with the idea of they wanted to speed things up a bit, waiting for Armageddon and all of that. They were bored and they wanted to make it happen a bit more quickly. So they set about incarnating the Antichrist. Um, And the idea was they'd have this magical ceremony. Uh, I was criticized for calling it a gay ceremony because although Parsons did masturbate while Hubbard was watching, um, they didn't actually engage in sex together. So let's call it homoerotic. In case I've anybody's always worried. wondered
1: about that. So you're sure that there was no homosexual activity there?
0: I'm not sure that there wasn't. I don't know that there was. Okay, but it's uncertain. The, the, when we, we get into um, what words mean, to Alistair Crowley, the word wand, you know, that nice little Disney thing that you tap things with, means penis. Right. And you get the magical fluid, you may know another name for this, children, Mm -hmm. um, out of the one, and that is then used in magical ceremonies. In fact, Crowley's magical ceremonies, the Scientologists criticised me, saying he's got a lot of magic books, and it's true. But I got them because they were things Hubbard had read. Yes, I've never been a practitioner of any kind of magic, ritual or otherwise, and I despise it. White, black, or anything that seeks to coerce other people, anything that seeks to, you know, not get their consent first is wrong. So any magical act of that type, I'm against it. Um, Whatever it is, I'm against it, as Groucho Marx so rightly said. Um, So what they would, in the Crowley system, bodily fluids are very important. And um, that included menstrual blood. That was, uh, that was used to make Magic and my own. I don't even like to talk about this, but um, there is a Crowley, very um, not very often published Crowley statement about leukorrhea, which is the liquid, the fluid created if a woman has gonorrhea. Oh,
1: and he was between, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Did. Yeah, that's gross. I, Ah. Uh. A couple really <laughs> disgusting things I've heard in my life, uh, and that's that's top five. That's gross. Good.
0: that That's oh. you know because I feel the same way, and it's why I generally don't mention it. But yeah. in the context of revealing all, we better do that. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff Crowley was into, along with heroin, cocaine. Yeah. You know, he was a heroin junkie when he died. That's right. Um, but there is this correspondence, and I got hold of it, and as I say, people have tried to correct me. Crowley, when talking, writing to Carl Germa, his deputy, talks about the idiocy of these louts. Now, this is usually given as goats rather than louts. The reason I come to louts being the only possible word I can fit in that it could have been is The Crowley letters were considered to have such deadly magical power, they were transcribed and burned. Hmm. Magicians, I I had a Baptist ministry who wanted to exorcise my house, which was good fun. And he said, you've got to get rid of those books, those magic books, because they've got all this. It's like, yeah, really? I should cocoa. Um, Oh dear, things people believe. But the Crowley originals were destroyed. Okay. And so they were transcribed. And the transcription, there is no way that Crowley would have thought calling somebody a goat was an insult. You know, goats are lovely things as far as people like that are concerned. You know, right. they're very into goats. Um, so I'm pretty convinced that he was idiocy, louts. That's what he thought of his good friend, Exactly. Ron That's the only contact they ever had. They basically performed a magical ceremony to bring the mother of Babylon, the mother of the whore of Babylon, the scarlet woman of the uh, book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, uh, which probably shouldn't have been included, I don't think. But it did get included because it was thought St. John had written it. He didn't. Um, hmm. Never mind. And it's it's wild stuff, you know, seven-headed lambs and it reads so,
1: like yeah. somebody's drug trip i tried to read it one time and i was like this is like reading somebody's lsd trip is what this feels like yeah I and mean, the idea is that it was people's religious beliefs but i'm just saying it, it reads like a drug trip from somebody who has no invested emotion in it you know
0: yeah, just, and it, you know theologians will say well it, it's actually a, a veiled reference to rome the seven hills the sure. seven this that and it's during the time, I believe, of the Diocletian persecution of uh, Christians and Jews. Mm. And so it, it's coded, and we don't have the capacity to decode it anymore. Um, so, you know, it's an apocryphal book. I don't think it should be in there. And if somebody would like to argue canon law with me, we can have a great time, but I'd probably rather not. Um, so, they, they wanted to hurry things up yeah. to the end yeah. days. And, you know, as of course, of many American politicians over the years, you mm. know, it's a sad thing in the Bush Reagan administration there. Let's go to Iraq and bring on the end days. Um, they did their ceremony. They listened, is it Rachmanin off the Isle of the Dead? They listened to, and it's all recorded. You can get the Book of Babylon. People have been talking about it for years. Um, I was surprised. There were various things that um, interested me that, no, you know, firstly, there's a Crowley letter which is dated uh, 5-1-1946, which Americans naturally read as the 1st of May. It doesn't fit into the timeline. Well, being English, I read it as the 5th of January, right. which is when it was actually written. Um, they perform their ceremony with Jack Parsons jerking off, Hubbard intoning the ceremony, Book of Babylon, which you can get. As far as I know, no commentator before I got to this had worked out what this ceremony is. And um, that's kind of weird because if you look into the. Um, there's a book called The Secret Rituals of the OTO by Francis King. And. Um, In it, looking for the exact expression here in the text, this, the eighth ceremony, OTO8. Let's pause at that thought. OTO8.
1: For those of you who are not connecting the dots right now, let me connect them for you. The highest levels of Scientology and the confidential lectures that people are, or levels that people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to do and partake in and years of their life to get through are called the OT levels in Scientology. So OT8, by the way, is the highest level that is offered by Scientology uh, now and forever because there are no levels above that. So OT8 is a very significant set of letters and numbers in Scientology, which happen to have a callback to the OTO. Yeah,
0: for some strange reason. Yes, probably this coincidence. Is, this this uh, this ritual is called concerning the secret marriages of gods with men. Is it? Or the magic or the magical masturbation.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh,
0: okay. So this is what they were up to and sure enough a woman called Marjorie Cameron turned up. Right. And she changed her name to Cameron. She's famous because she was an actress. She's in Kenneth Anger's weird art films, which which I'm not a fan. Um, she did little drawings and paintings. I went to a show a few months ago, quite by accident, which was a show of work by, and I wasn't, you know, it was just we were passing the museum, you know. It was, it's a show of um, mediums. And I thought it was going to be about artistic Medium, you know, like oil paint and stuff like that. But it was actually work by mediums, a number of whom were Crowleyites. And there was a work by Marjorie Cameron in that.
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: The only time I've ever seen, she married Jack Parsons. But by the time she, and she didn't have, damn it, she didn't give birth to the Scarlet Woman. In fact, they didn't have any children. So we missed a chance there. Uh, And this woman is going to bring about the reign of the Antichrist and, you know, there's going to be a terribly long period of horror. Uh, If you say the word Armageddon to a Jehovah's Witness, they get very worried Mm -hmm. because they've been waiting for it since it was first prophesied in 1914 and they're getting a little bit anxious. 2033, I'm told, is the next date for the annihilation of everything. So I'm looking forward to that. Um,
1: Uh, The next test of everybody's cognitive dissonance, 2033.
0: Mm That bloody time, too, after the Mayan calendar failed me I and know, right?
1: Come on. What happened to 2012? It was going to be epic, so, man. But then, while
0: he's already taken Parsons' girlfriend, Sarah, from him, uh, who by dint of strange into fate is actually Parsons' sister in law as well, because he was married to her sister. But, you know, it's not for me to criticize. Hubbard's run off with her. He's managed to persuade Parsons to give him $35,000, which in 1946 is quite a lot of money and everything that Parsons had in the world. Um, Parsons wrote about this in a book called Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword um, before he died in a mysterious explosion. And as a rocket scientist, it's kind of weird to think that he didn't know how to handle fulminate mercury. So... As Elrond Hubbard said, there are men dead because they opposed us. Um, Not that we killed them. Um, Mm. But Hubbard's run off to Florida with all of the money. I think he put 200 bucks in and Sarah, who called herself Betty at the time, you can call me Betty, um, put about 20 bucks in and they bought yachts. And there was this huge, you know, Parsons goes down to get his money back. His money's already gone. And... That there's a there's a legal case in Florida. Interestingly enough, I've discovered recently that some of the pages from that legal case are no longer there. What? And it would appear, yeah, it would appear that um, I'm one of the very few people in the world who has the original documents of, of that, that agreement. Oh. Um, but so Parsons goes home, licks his wounds, and, and writes about it. And Hubbard then goes to the next phase of the story, which is probably the blood ritual. This document was mentioned during the 1984 case against Jerry Armstrong in Los Angeles. And uh, a few years later, I had a knock on the door and it was Omar Garrison. Unannounced, the man who had been paid hundreds of thousands of dollars not to publish the commission biography of Ron Hubbard, and Garrison said to me, "I'm tired of having my door kicked in, where well, they try to get the documents back—the thousands of pages of Hubbard documents that he, Jerry had um, helped him, uh, well, you know, had, had given to him as the official biographer of our Ron Hubbard." So I'm tired of having my door kicked in. I'm coming here to talk to you so that Scientology will know that if they do anything else to me, I'm going to give you all of the documents. And just as a matter of good faith, here is the blood ritual. You cannot copy it. You cannot make any notes. Uh, And this document is basically a blood pact with the goddess Hathor Um, who is, as with many uh, divinities and deities, has two aspects which are oppositional. One is she's the spotted cow who feeds all of humanity. That's the nice bit. But the bit that Hubbard was interested in was the destroyer of mankind, um, the equivalent of Kali, black Kali in the Hindu system. And he pledges his life to her. She becomes the empress. She becomes the dominant force in his life. And this this is,
1: just very quickly, this is an Egyptian god. Goddess, yeah. Goddess, that's right. A Goddess of fertility. Uh, There's a lot wrapped up in her. Uh, She has a vengeful aspect that protects her from her enemies. Yeah, there's a lot here to this.
0: And in the Crowley art system, you know, Crowley gave a a really kind of um, kindergarten view of um, what 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 would become called the perennial philosophy, the idea that the same gods are, you know, you can cross them over from one system to another, the yeah. Greeks, the Vikings, yeah. the Romans. It's not true. That's right. um, the, the Greek and the Roman are very close together. But even there, there are serious differences. And there are many different, you know, in Greek mythology, that there are different versions of different gods and goddesses. So it gets very complicated, but Crowley had this simplistic view and Hubbard latched onto Crowley's description of Hathor and dedicated his life to her service. Uh, According to Nibs, once Crowley had died and Crowley called himself the Beast 666, Hubbard felt he had adopted the mantle. He was now the bringer of the Antichrist, um, which, of course, tantalizingly, the little document that came out that was part of the original OT8 course, yeah. he says he is the Antichrist, That's Lucifer.
1: Right. He says that he, he, he goes from trying to bring the Antichrist to I am the Antichrist. Yes, it's the way of it. Yes. Yeah, that's and the a, source uh, of the universe
0: and the enemy of Jehovah, of course.
1: Y- y- and exactly, he- and uh, he has interesting things to say about Jesus Christ in that document. And I uh, swear, and, oh. and also, if you read through it, knowing all this stuff that we're talking about and Hubbard's real beliefs about things, he also makes reference, I think, to Gnostic ideas, and and he's and he says in a few other places that. Scientology comes out of a Gnostic tradition which has to do with hidden knowledge and and ascendancy and truth and and spiritual awakening through uh, through knowledge I a series think.
0: of initiations yeah. and indeed sociologists use the term neo-gnosticism to describe things like the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons yes. and Scientology that have a series of steps that you go through within you know the Gnostic philosophy is rather oversimplified there are almost 200 different Gnostic sets. Yeah, there's a lot of different, yeah. But but the general idea was that once you had, you know, and it follows on from the they're a mystery cult, um, at the time that Christianity emerged, um, the mystery cults were the most significant religious power in the Roman Empire. And so Christianity has a certain reference to them, which is lost to modern ears. Yep. But when St. Paul went to Greece, he would have been dealing with um, followers of, of mystical cults. And so they would expect to go through a series of initiations to, achieve, to become elect. Yes. The and the Gnostic groups, for the most part, believe this and they would teach you the passwords to pass through the seven planets that would take you to heaven, which apparently is I don't like to say this because it's not really that funny, but it's just beyond Uranus.
1: <laughs> I'm um, sorry, that is a little funny, but yes, I get it. I get it. Uranus, in all, in yes, all ways planet, of looking yes. at that phrase, it's <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, and this, these ideas, and various tropes, and symbols, and 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 uh, the iconography. I mean. There's a lot that Scientology draws from this stuff. I mean, the whole mm. origin story of Scientology's cross, the eight-pointed cross, goes right back to Rosicrucian's rosy cross and the symbols of this, the Dianetic Pyramid. Even, I mean, even getting down to why were all of the original books of Scientology green? They could have chosen whatever color they wanted for the hardcover books, but they were always green with gold writing. What's up with that? Well, you look at this emerald goddess, this spiritual, you know, this, this woman on the wing uh, in the green dress. I mean, these things go one to the next to the next. These are dots that connect. It's not weird to, to, to see how this all evolves. Hubbard wasn't a complicated thinker, (laughs) you know, with this stuff. No, they're
0: they're cartoon versions of these things. Let let me enter another one, which is, if you take the Crowley system and you translate Hathor into the Roman system, she is the goddess Diana.
1: There we go. That's...
0: Diane Etix. That's right. And his daughter, Diana. So, yeah, as you say... He is not a deep thinker. He's kind of, yeah, the Walt Disney of spiritualism. Yes. And he's building
1: on a tradition of plagiarism because, you know, this goes, I mean, Hubbard's knowledge of this is coming out of Crowley and coming out of Madame Blavatsky. I mean, we've done, you know, I've done podcasts with Joe Zimhart, breaking Mm -hmm. that whole thing down. You know, this is not original thinking to Hubbard. He was just... Cribbing from people who'd already, who, who spent their lives diving into and plagiarizing from earlier sources with this. And, and Blavatsky is the big one. If you go back to her and you look her up, you're going to find the roots of so many things, including Scientology.
0: And the Nazi beliefs in, in Aryanism come from her. I mean, the other one is Mary, Mary Baker Eddy. Yes. And, and Hubbard criticized her ideas before Scientology and then adopted them. So the suppressive person, that's about malicious animal magnetism. And it's never really stated. Why are we frightened of suppressive people? Why must we not communicate with them? Because they have malicious animal magnetism. Itself a, a ludicrous notion that comes out of Mesmer's idea of animal magnetism yes. or hypnosis. Uh, you know, And we go around. I mean, there's another really obscure one, which is that the Roman god Janus is sometimes spelt dianus d-i-a-n-u-s and Janus is that's what Scientology really is. Janus is the two-faced god we have the month January named for him as the year turns from one face to the other and Scientology is the two-faced religion that it would it claims to be as with Hathor that it's nurturing and fertilizing humanity but in reality it is enslaving its members psychologically and physically.
1: That's right. Now, um, let's, let's go to why. What was the purpose of all of this? Because all this involved ritual, and we have a realization of intent or will, and that should be the whole of the law, right? And by the way, Hubbard cribbed Aleister Crowley's formatting from the Book of Law, his own work, you know, this axioms and logics and all of this stuff that's early Scientology material. If you if you know the history of Scientology, then Hubbard was big on axioms. And it's kind of like, well, where the hell did this come from? Go look at the book of the law. It's all in there. Uh, There's again, there's very little original thinking here is, is sort of the point. But what was it that Hubbard was trying to do with all of this? Aha. Uh, <laughs> that
0: this is the point where very few people have have followed me mm. that they're, they're happy to accept you know many bits and pieces but i have an overview here which i've had for many years now um marty rathburn um when people still spoke to him um published a blog, and this was about 2015 or something, where he said he'd realized that Hubbard wanted to be a god. He wanted to be turned into a god, apotheosis. And um, I did write to him. He didn't respond, rude man, and said, yeah, read The the piece of Blue Sky, 1990. I haven't changed a word of it in the new edition, where I talk about Hubbard basically following... Systems that exist existed in Rome and China whereby a human being can become be deified. Um, there's a moment in um, the uh, wonderful televised version of I Claudius, Robert Graves's incredible novels, um, I Claudius and Claudius the God, where Livia, who is the wife of Augustus and will event the, the first emperor, the first Augustus. Um, the first Caesar in that in that line that who she poisons she poisons her own husband so that her son Tiberius can become but she realizes having ridiculed Claudius all of his life claw claw Claudius an oracle tells her that he will be emperor and she pleads with him make me a god because to become eternal You have to be worshipped. The same idea is found in Chinese philosophy. Mm -hmm. So by people remembering you, now, this one connects all the way. The original documents for um, the Church of Spiritual Technology, I got very interested in this group. We got into the legal documents around them. and got David Mayo $2.9 million into the thing. I was paid $1,000. I'm an idiot. It's just that simple. But I gave them their strategy. I gave them their documents by getting stuff out of, they were trying to get tax exemption. And one of the documents, and I'm afraid my collection has been devastated. I've lost, I don't know where this all story of a squirrel part two are. Um, but one of the documents said that the purpose of the Church of Spiritual Technology was to perpetuate the name L. Ron Hubbard.
1: There it is. Yep. He
0: left $648 million, $500 million of it, went to an organization that is not perpetuating Scientology. If we wind all the way back to 1938, August 1938, one of the vital documents of Scientology, the Skipper Letter. Yep. And I'm very happy to say that it was through me that this became public when it leaked out of the uh, archive. And in this document, Hubbard clearly says, in August 1938, he doesn't believe in any form of immortality other than the barred note, the painted canvas, hard grabite, I think he meant granite. And that's it. There's no other. And he then says that he wants to be remembered My, his only goal in life. His only goal in life. Is to be remembered, to smash my name into history so hard that even if all the books are destroyed, I'll be remembered. Um, this letter, in terms of provenance, has been copyrighted by Author Service Incorporated, the body that owns the copyrights to Aaron Hubbard, so you can actually get a copy of it from the Library of Congress. <laughs> Just, what a thought along with lots of other little bits and pieces, which are kind of damning to, to Hubbard. So, and, and there's a contradiction. We, we didn't and should mention the affirmations or admissions as they're sometimes called, which Jerry Armstrong, bless you, Jerry, um, brought to the public. And here we have Hubbard circa 1948, 47, 48, preparing himself for interviews with Veterans Administration, because having failed to cure himself he now wants a pension and he received that pension $38 a month to the end of his life so he never did cure himself I'm afraid or never told them the truth about it $38 a month and he would prepare himself by going through a series of hypnotic affirmations these include all men are your slaves all elemental beings are your slaves. And also we come back to his feet again. I have, you have perfect and lovely feet. So we still don't know what was wrong with his feet. Nobody's told us that yet. We'll, you know, maybe there'll be somebody watching this who saw Hubbard's feet at some point. You know, I think that, um, Dennis Gillam must have, Grady Gillam must have seen his feet at some point and we we may find out what was wrong with them.
1: Yeah. Um, We've never had any comments on that, but um, no, and it's an important a, point. You know what, what you're standing on. You know. Let's let, let me let me read a couple other key lines out of the affirmations. There's a Wikipedia page on this. You, anybody can go look this up. This is L. Ron Hubbard's handwritten note submitted into court. The church has not contested this. This is this is known, documented stuff. So if you want, and I've I've told people many many times over the years. If you want a window into L. Ron Hubbard and who he really was, this is as good as you're going to get. And there are lines in here such as, um, you know, the, my mind is still brilliant, I can write. But check this out, that I believe in my gods and spiritual things. That my magical work is powerful and effective That the numbers 7, 25, and 16 are not unlucky or evil for me. I mean, if this isn't literally the definition of magical thinking, and this is his personal writings, he wasn't expecting anybody else to ever see this. This was his window. This is the best window we have into who this guy was.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And which I think, you know, I think we have now. Laid the yeah. grounds for um, the actual purpose of Scientology. When we think about ritual, and he was a performer of, of ritual sex magic. Mm. When we think about ritual, we think about you know a Christian church, and um, you know, particularly the Catholic or Episcopalian Anglican churches. They have. Um, clothes, they have ceremonies, they have words. Um, If we go back, we can go back actually to the time of the Emperor Claudius. When Claudius became emperor, before the the games, the bread and circuses that kept the plebs from rebelling, before the games, there were invocations by priests that took about three days, if I remember rightly. And if one of them stumbled on a word, I had to go back to the beginning. And it was Claudius who said, sod it, you know, let's just keep on going. He also gave us the U as an aspect of the V. So his name was Clavdivs, but it's a soft V, which he gave us as the letter U. So, So bless him, lovely man. Everything must be exactly right, because otherwise it won't work. Everything has to be in its place my contention is very simple. Scientology is a magical ritual. The whole of Scientology is a magical ritual, where probably the numbers 7, 16, and 25 are not unlucky, Um, where you have these people who are dehumanized into terminals. I love that word. you have these organizations, you have these uniforms, including campaign ribbons, which is actually against the law both here and in the US, but they still wear them and nobody busts them. And it's insulting to people who've actually fought in wars and done things that that were valorous, but nonetheless. You have a language that is so precise that in auditing you have to use exactly these words. And they are, by the way, not questions, but commands yep. that you do. And by acting out all of the rituals of Scientology, there is some other purpose. Now, Hubbard, we, we said intention is the foundation of Scientology, the will. Hubbard talked about having counter and other intention. Hmm. Scientology works as Elrond Hubbard intends it to work, which is, in fact, a counterintention to Scientologists. They wish to become self-determined and powerful and they are becoming completely other-determined. One of the things that bothered me in Scientology was that most of the success stories, the testimonials, were Ron was right. Nobody seemed to be able to discover anything or think anything other than that he was the, the greatest thing that had ever existed in well, at least in the fifty thousand years, what was it that somebody discovered fifty thousand years ago that was important? Which was the last? He never explained that. That and his feet—they they will remain a mystery forever. So, the Babylon working is a ritual to incarnate the Antichrist to bring about the end days. Um. And with no concern about the return of Jesus, I don't think they thought that was going to happen. So they can take over. Scientology is a continuation of that process. It is to bring about a world with no democracy, with no freedom of belief, with no freedom of decision, with no freedom of movement. It is to bring about a world that is completely controlled by the intention of Ron Hubbard so that Ron Hubbard can be um, viewed in the the light that he wished to be viewed. The supreme God, the Demiurge, the creator of the universe is the position that that he was after. Sadly, he fell a little bit short and um, was distributed in the form of ash over the Pacific Ocean and has not sadly reincarnated so he could be sent to prison for his past crimes. Um, he had 21 years, didn't he, really? to yeah, come, back. This, he right. come back. That's right. Unless David Miscavige, of course, has been murdering the firstborn of, of all the... Oh, he has. Oh, dear. There's something else going on here mm. that he's making sure that he can't reincarnate by mm. forcing people to have abortions. Let me add a footnote to that. In studying the Nazis and their occult relationship, most historians weren't willing to do it. Because they say, well, magic is complete nonsense. Well, Winston Churchill, I'm told, had an astrologer because he knew Hitler had one. And he wanted to know what Hitler was being told. So my point of view is this magic stuff is absolute bullshit. Strike me dead if that's not true. There you go. Didn't work. It's complete superstitious nonsense, and it's incredibly harmful to us to accept it. It's not to say that there aren't deeper and more wonderful things working in the world, you know, more deeply interfused as Wordsworth had it. There may well be, but as an agnostic, I don't care to believe. I would rather see evidence and construct something reasoned than believe that, you know, my cat and put a hex on me she wouldn't she's a lovely thing um you know Or that i mustn't walk under ladders though it does seem like a dangerous thing to do and if i break a mirror uh, i'm with stevie wonder if you believe in things you don't understand you will suffer and scientology cannot be understood because it does not make sense um, so I don't believe that Alan Hubbard achieved any of these things. I think he was a weak, despicable, semi-psychotic human being. He was forever suffering from some illness or other. Uh, he failed to cure any of the things he claimed in Dianetics in himself. His short-sightedness. He was wearing spectacles to the end. He was an alcoholic. Um, he had. He admitted to drug use, no matter what anybody who was around him says. He said that he'd. Um, Addicted himself to phenobarbital as a guinea pig, and, and it was really hard coming off phenobarbital. And then a few years later, he tried to cash a prescription for it in East Grinstead, signed Dr. Elron Hubbard, 1965, Nembutol. Um, he recommended the use of Benzodrin mm-hmm. after amphetamines and right. was the founder of Narconon while smoking 100 cigarettes a day and having a serious alcohol problem. Sorry. It's it's, a, it's all a Wizard of Oz creation, Yes, and that's the magic, that's the only real magic. It's a little scruffy red-haired man standing on a stool with a megaphone shouting behind a curtain, and to get away from it, it's important to understand that he was psychiatrically ill and his magic only works if you believe it works soon as you say um yeah this uh, reality is an agreement that lovely foundational lie in Scientology no reality is reality whether you agree with it or not and we aren't all chanting space particle position space particle position every minute as he said but it's ludicrous nonsense fundamentally to put it in a nutshell
1: (laughs) Well, you've really, you've really done a great job here of, of walking through this and getting to where we're really at, which is that you have the ultimate system of authoritarian control and slavery. And I don't use those words lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, those are appropriate words to use when you're talking about what Scientology does to people. Yeah. You know, I, we lived it, right? Um, I now, you know, we both understand how coercive control works, what it is, what it's all about. This is a system that installs that software in your life. Yep. It, it, it it creates a program of your life where you are following rituals and 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 practices. That further and further enslave you by through all the mechanisms we've discussed so many times of trance induction and, and repetition and thought stopping cliches and mantras as solutions to living rather than actually just living. You know this is what this is all about, and and it's a and it's a totalist system. When by that we mean. It takes over your entire life. It takes over all of your relationships. It takes over the way you think about things and your language. There's, you know, there's big books of of definitions of words that you have to abide by and follow, and that that changes the way you think at a very fundamental yeah. level. And all of this was done on purpose. This didn't, you know, the the. the I've talked about. The opportunism and the, and the enabling and the, and the, the way that, that um, people like L. Ron Hubbard would take advantage of opportunities in the moment to forward what they're trying to do. But the purpose of what they're trying to do is there from the beginning. Hmm. And this was a system of control. And L. Ron Hubbard was a desperate, desperately flawed, horribly uh, depressed an anxious, and upset person. He, yeah. he, he, there was never a day where L. Ron Hubbard was just on top of the world. L. Ron Hubbard hated himself, hated everything about his life, and wanted to change it because he wanted to be in charge. And he thought pathologically that the way to do that was to enslave other people. He literally wrote these words. I don't have to conjecture about what he thought. He wrote it. So we put all this together with this system of magic and Crowley and the occult and, and this long tradition of nonsense, and we find systems of control, mm. you know, all in an effort, as, we've, as, as you so brilliantly put together there, to keep L. Ron Hubbard's name being said for eternity, because mm. that's godhood, that's, that's immortality.
0: And, and thankfully it isn't. Um, I I had a a bizarre experience, first time I came to the US in 1986, um, there was a class 12 auditor working at, uh, and at that time there were only 50 anywhere in the world, working for Sarge Gabodi in his um, uh, advanced ability centre as it was then, it would later become the Institute for Research in Domestic Psychology, which is another story. and. I was around there for two two two-week periods, and I interviewed David Mayo, I interviewed various people, she would not speak a word to me. I really didn't understand why, it seemed discourteous to say the least, but she would not address me, she would not look at me. And um, I visited again a couple of years later, a few years later, and I was at a, a massive party and um, a little bit the worse for wear by the end of the evening myself, I admit it, it can occasionally happen. It's a long time. <laughs> and I'm sat there and this woman and it's massive party, lots of people who I don't know, starts ranting at me. And it, there she was. She decided she could um, talk to me. And she said, you're giving him what he wants. You're making him famous. And Because, as I say, I was a little worse for wear. I didn't just say, and you're brainwashing people (laughs) using his methods. Right. I don't mind that people remember Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. I think it's useful. And I don't think it means that L. Ron Hubbard is still amongst us because I mentioned his name. Yep. And I do think that if people are to recover from, let's call it the enchantment of Scientology, if they're to get over the spell that was put upon them, the more they understand about Hubbard and his machinations, the easier that will be to do. And that that has, you know, been something I, I've now lived with for 39 years, and um, you know, now it's your job.
1: Uh, <laughs> I, hey, I'm running. I'm running with it, you know. Um, that's been a good
0: job of it too.
1: Thank you. Well, this, this, and and as I've said from the beginning, you know, I am only standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, that is, I really believe that. Um, and I'm referring to Jerry and you and the Tori and the OG people. You know, so many Dennis Erlich, so many people took so much slacking so that I and Aaron and Tony could do our work with a minimum of shellacking compared to what happened to those people back in the past. Mm -hmm. But I I wanted to say that this is the hardest part of Scientology to understand and Mm -hmm. to accept. It took me years to get my wits around even parts of this because I rejected it wholesale. I could not, did not want to acknowledge any of this was valid as a former Scientologist. So I wanted to say that at the end here, because as we're, as, we're, we're gonna move toward wrapping up with this, but I wanted to say that I understand how insane all this sounds, how crazy it is. We've done our best to connect a lot of dots. There are more dots to connect. You can go into this material that we've cited here and, and do that yourself. It's all there and it's not hard to figure out, but, you, but, but it's hard to accept. And, mm. and yet I needed to know this all the way down to these brass tacks of what is at the bottom of the rabbit hole of Scientology. It's this. This is as deep as it goes. Now, the awfulness of what Scientologists will do, we haven't even plumbed those depths. I mean, you know, in terms of belief and, and what that does to people. But, but as far as what is Scientology really, mm. this is it. We just talked about it you know, and, and this is as deep as it goes. And um, I just can't stress enough, you know, this is why when people talk to me about independent Scientology and well, what's the problem with people doing auditing sessions or feeling good? And I'm like nothing, but you don't understand what you're doing. You Mm -hmm. don't, you don't get how even outside of the official sanction of Scientology, you are still reinforcing Hubbard's systems of control on your own mental life yeah. by continuing this nonsense, and it was never about helping you, ever. No, you know, the,
0: it, there is another intention, and I mean, I, I've, I'm dismayed because. There is so much wrong. You know, we you know some other time we'll get into the when we've talked about it before, but what the auditing procedures are, yeah. where they came yeah. from, and what they actually eventuate in. But but the simplest thing is to say Dianetics is an outgrowth of the technique developed by Josef Breuer and used by Sigmund Freud. And the outcome for Breuer, when you look into it, this is the case of Anna Fonneau, the first case of Dianetics, if you like, in the 1890s, and she ended her therapy by being admitted to an asylum for morphine addiction. The admission notice signed joseph Breuer, and he was the one who first gave her morphine. Now, so that's how the first case worked out we roll forward to I think it's 1911 the Worcester Massachusetts lectures by Freud, and he describes the Dianetic technique. it's right there, you know even the counting backwards and yeah. um, the repetition of phrases, the chains of incidents, he, contrary to what Hubbard says he does have trauma as you know um, physical trauma as one of the things he's looking at, not just psychological trauma. And Freud points out at the end of this particular lecture, and you know that I'm not a fan of Freud, I think he was an evil man um, who disturbed the psyche of humanity for many years with his abject nonsense about all parents abusing their children sexually, the seduction theory and this kind of stuff. But Freud, looking at this technique, which is called Dianetics later on, says the reason we stop doing it is because it does not resolve the transference. The whole point, the whole basis of his idea is that we are acting out relationships from infancy that we will then transfer onto the adults around us throughout our lives. We'll keep behaving in these infantile ways. And so to resolve the transference means to get the person to become an individual, to be self-determined in Hubbard's terms. So Freud himself dismisses the technique and says it doesn't resolve the transference. It makes people more dependent on the therapist. Right. Hubbard pretty much must have read those words because when he talks about being 12 years old and studying for, in fact, four days with Commander Thompson. In a boat going through the Panama Canal, he could only have looked at the work that was available by Freud in 1923 in English. And there it is, the most popular, those lectures, because they were delivered at an American university, were published in English. So this is so you get back to this, and then you get him banning it a year later. So the the point is, without going further into the other techniques, he is grabbing techniques that he knows will make people a get high, yes. feel euphoric, yes. wow, that was great, and want the experience again, and b make them more dependent. Which led me to the phrase "auditing junkie."
1: Yes, many. Years ago. That's so, right. That's right. But yeah, it,
0: it's it is all it's. It's magic, you know, and not in a nice way. <laughs> no,
1: it's not Doug Henning magic. It's not David Copperfield magic. This is dangerous stuff. It's yeah. ma- I I I just you know I just can't stress this enough. Just and, and I and I think a lot of my like you know kind of whatever intent to get this across to people is just because it took me so long to come mm. to an acceptance of it. You know, it's hard. It's hard to deal with the fact that you were involved in a system that was designed to um, make less of you and control you and, and, and hypnotize and imprison you. While the entire time you're there, you're absolutely positive that you are becoming freer and freer and freer while you are becoming more and more and more dependent on this thing and that's where we now understand more in the in the two thousands now we have a more thorough understanding of what this addiction model is and that's what Scientology's awe and euphoria and all of that are all about so man what a what a trip huh <laughs> I mean what a I'm, trip I'm-
0: Anybody who wants to look into it more deeply, I, there's a chapter in, let's sell these people a piece of Blue Sky called His Magical Career, and I would be obliged if you'd buy a copy of the book Please. rather than stealing it from the internet. Nobody has my permission to publish it, um, and it did take me six years of my life to write, and you'll be out exchange if you don't give me anything, and will therefore go to hell. Um, <laughs> The other thing is that on the internet, free of charge, indeed, on 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 my channel, you can see me reading the paper. You know, if, if you can't manage to do it yourself, um, the 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 paper "Hubbard and the Occult," from from which much of I've had it down to the side of me throughout. I admit it; I've got a crib sheet, uh, but I did write it. Um, in which much of this material exists, and and I hope that other people will go further and find out more and and develop these ideas. Um further. As I say, you know, Chris is my anointed successor and um we'll we'll carry on while I slope off into the wilderness and um meditate on something or other.
1: Paint yeah, some hilarious. pictures,
0: write some novels. Exactly. Again.
1: Exactly. Get to some creative work.
0: Yeah. The real thing. Exactly. it's been fantastic it's always fun and every time we talk it 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 seems even better what can i say and that's not usually how romance goes in this world
1: <laughs> <laughs> i agree i agree completely i think that the quality and content that we've put together over the years has really really become better and better and better and that's how i feel about it too
0: and it was really good to start with you know yeah so. <laughs> exactly
1: all right folks so listen if you haven't subscribed to john's channel at this point you better you need to do that because he's got a great YouTube Patrons,
0: channel. patreon 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 uh, you know we you know everything you know i'm in my fourth year on the channel now i have not as yet made a cent from it um the work was free keep it so as i run i never knew what he meant by that the work was actually very expensive
1: exactly it's
0: we are trying to keep spike alive Poor waif and stray that she is. So I really appreciate, you know, even if it's just a few bucks a month and, and do the same for Chris. Um, it's very important. It's much more important, in fact, that Chris makes a living from this so that he can concentrate on it and do it. I am going to leave the building at some point and uh, I'll stay longer if we get enough people on the patreon account so that i can get 10 cents a week out of this too you know
1: exactly look it's it's the harsh reality of life folks out there that we are fan funded this is how we get our work done we're not going out getting grants and 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 sugar daddies and things like that that's not how we do our stuff so your support is appreciated and with that uh john thank you again for taking the time
0: yeah thank you too it's been great you thanks bad. a lot all right guys see
1: you next week Bye-bye.